Morning, church. What a joy to be together. It is Christmas time. We are in Advent season. And man, what a better day to get out of the cold into a warm building and praise our Jesus and celebrate the gospel, right? We are continuing our Advent series today. I'm glad you're here. Continuing our Advent series today. Jim started us off last week with a really hard test, <laughs> if you were here. But uh, I'm, I'm excited for this. This is a, a if I'm, I'm being honest, a weird Christmas series. But I think it's so good for us. We're, we're, we're taking this season of Advent, we're taking each of the themes of the Advent wreath, each week of the Advent season. So, so hope, faith, love, joy, and then Christ on Christmas Eve. And we're looking at these concepts through the lens of the women in Jesus's genealogy. And Jesus's genealogy is represented in Matthew. Uh, it's mostly the dads, but we get a couple pictures of some of these great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus. And we're using each of these stories to kind of look at the thematic element for Advent that week. And so Jim jumped us off last week talking about hope through the lens of Tamar, this young lady who, who just, if we're honest, had very little hope, whose, whose circumstances had really crushed her hope, her control of the world. This week, we're considering, uh, this is the week in Advent, the week of faith. And so we're considering faith. What does it mean to be a people of faith? How does faith speak into not just our experience of the Christmas season, but our experience of the gospel, the Christian life. What is Christian faith, and, and what, what role does it play in our lives day to day? I think this is really timely for us, because we live in a time and a place where, where faith is really disregarded. I was, I was on a, a friend's podcast recently, and he was talking to me about faith, and this is a guy who doesn't follow Christ, and he, he represented what I think is really, if I'm being honest, a normative understanding of the word, the, the word faith in our culture and context, which is essentially believing something without a good reason. This is the way we hear it talked about, that faith is kind of a blind faith. It's believing something without the necessary evidence, right? And I don't know if you guys have heard faith talked about that way, but the reality is that's not what faith is. <laughs> it's a poor understanding of the term, much less specifically Christian faith. That's not a good understanding of faith as a concept. Faith is a really normative way for human beings to come to know and believe things. It really is. And we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but we're going to talk about it through the lens of Rahab. So if you have your Bibles... Go ahead and open them up to Joshua chapter 2. If you read through Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, you'll see mostly men, but a couple ladies represented, Tamar, and now we're looking at Rahab. So I'm going to go ahead and read this text for us in just a second, and we're going to jump into this. But, but I really want to start us off on this right foot before we get into it, and, and it's this, guys. Faith is a totally reasonable, good, normal way for human beings to engage the world. But beyond that, beyond that, specifically Christian faith, the, the, the idea that we believe that God is who the Bible says he is, and he does what, he'll, what he says he'll do, because that's not, just, that's not just reasonable, that is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. 
to be people of faith. I'm going I'm to read this text. We'll kind of go from there. Joshua chapter 2, starting in the first verse, we read this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Sure, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had actually brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please... Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of ours that you have made us swear Behold, when we, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and as they departed, she tied the scarlet cord in the window. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, this morning as we take a few minutes to consider your word, to consider this season of Advent, this season of expectation, God, I pray that you would just, this morning, refresh us, our souls, our persons, our hearts, in your gospel. Lord, we desire to be people of faith, people whose hearts are so grounded in your truth that trusting in your gospel is as natural as breathing the air around us. 
Lord, I pray that you would do this work in our hearts. Convict us today of things that get in between us and you. Remind us of things we've forgotten. Encourage us. And Lord, ultimately, let us leave here today having heard from you and trusting in you more wholly. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. So we pray them in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do today. Now, this is one of those stories that if you're a Sunday school brat like me, like it's probably relatively familiar and you're like already prepping in your mind to like sing the song a little later. But what I'd like to do is walk back through the story and make sure we're all on the same page, kind of put this in its context within the Old Testament, specifically in what's kind of going on here. There's a couple historical and textual notes that I think will help clarify this text. But ultimately, we've just got this really clear picture of biblical faith in this story. It's just about as clear as you get when it comes to how faith helps believers engage the gospel of Jesus. And when we get to that space, I think we'll just take a few minutes and kind of consider why that's important in our cultural moment, why faith as a concept is something that's under attack, what it means to be people of faith, what it means to have Christian faith. And we'll kind of land uh, talking about um, what Jesus says about faith. We'll look at a little story in Luke 6 where he engages another prostitute who has faith in him, and then we'll end our time with some reflection. Sound good? Awesome. So we're picking up in Joshua. This, these stories we're going through, remember, these are based out of, or we're starting from, is the genealogy of Jesus. So we're, we're skipping multiple generations here, right? Like last week, we were in the age of the patriarchs, and we were talking about Judah, the son of Jacob. And now we've gone forward a ton of generations, and we're into the time of Joshua. So remember, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and grew into a mighty nation there, but grew into a mighty nation under the bondage of Pharaoh, and God moved and acted through human history, through the prophet Moses, to free his people from that oppression. God brought his wrath and his judgment upon Egypt in miraculous and supernatural ways, and Israel was freed. And and here's the beautiful thing about the gospel in the Torah, is that God doesn't just save Israel from the oppression, right? He doesn't just get them out of the bad, but he takes them forward into the good. He, He moves them from oppression to blessing. After Israel is brought out of Egypt, they're brought into the wilderness, and at Mount Sinai, God starts to give them gifts. He gives them the gift of the law and tells them how they can interact with him and how they can live holy and pleasing lives. He gives them the gift of the tabernacle so that they can worship him and they can be in relationship with him. And they have the ability to actually, through the priesthood and through the sacrificial system, interact with God and know where they stand with him. And he gives them the gift of the promised land. He, he directly intercedes and through himself and then a little later through one of his angels, leads Israel through the wilderness. He manifests in the tent of meeting and he leads the camp as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Like God is actively blessing his people, not just removing the bad, but replacing it with good, not just freeing them from bondage and slavery, but delivering them into covenant and into blessing. This is how our God engages us. But things don't go super great. (laughs) The first time they get to the promised land, they send out spies to check it out. And when they come back, they just kind of melt in fear. They look at Canaan and they go, 
God, I know you did the whole like really cool thing, split the Red Sea, the plagues. I know you like give the manna. I know you do the cloud thing, but like they got a lot of really big beefy boys with swords and I'm just like not sure this is going to work out super well. And God's response to them is essentially, if you don't have the faith that I will deliver the promised land to you, I won't. Okay, that's how we'll do this. If you don't trust that this is going to go down the way I said it will, we just won't do it. And he leads them back into the wilderness for an entire generation, for 40 years until all of those people pass away and he gives the, generation, the, the, the promised land to the next generation. This is where our story picks up. Even the prophet Moses has died at this point and Israel is being led by Joshua. Now, Josh is different than Moses. <laughs> Moses was a prophet. He, he led his people by seeking for them to see and know and experience God in fresh and accurate ways, to hear his voice. Joshua is a general. He leads his people by whipping them into action to get off their butts and go get stuff done, uh, which is what they need in this season, right? So our text picks up as Israel has once again come to the border of the promised land. They are sitting on the banks of the Jordan River, looking across to the land that God has been promising their people for generations, and they're sitting there ready to go. Now, I need to pause here for just a second. And the thing really is just this, guys. Joshua as a book is just, it's just unpleasant to our modern Western sensibilities. When you get to Joshua and like you read the Bible in a year plan, you kind of have this moment where you're like, oh, I, knew, I know a lot of these stories. We did a lot of these in Sunday school. And then you start reading them and you go, this is a lot more gory than I kind of remember it being. And it just kind of becomes disconcerting. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily comfortable for us to read because you have God leading his people into a violent military conquest. And there's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of death, a lot of death of non-combatants. Women and children that's, that God is leading his people in. And that's just not pleasant. Something we don't necessarily like to talk about. And if you want to dig into a little deeper layers of the theology there and what's going on here, I'd love to do that with you. But for our purposes today, I'll just say this. What we see in Joshua is actually an expression of what the entire Bible teaches about the character of Yahweh, which is that he has no problem interceding in human history, to give his just judgment against sin. That's, that's not necessarily something we may like hearing or saying or whatever, but that is what the Bible teaches about the character of God, is that he is just, and that his wrath against sin is justified, and that he does not have a problem interceding himself in human history to pour out wrath upon sin. I mean, a lot of Egyptians died for Israel to be freed from bondage, right? That's it's the truth of what it is. And even as we talk about Advent, the whole season of Advent is, is, us, is us taking a moment as the church to consider how much God's people were just anticipating and expecting the coming of the Messiah and how we as Christians today anticipate and, accept, and expect the second coming of the Messiah that Christ will return and restore all things, that, that, that we are to eagerly long for the return of Christ. But beloved, the return of Christ will bring with it God's righteous judgment against sin. 
It's intense, but it's true. When Christ returns, all things will be made new. And everything that is sinful and awful and of the curse will cease to be. And only what is righteous and holy and washed in the blood of Christ will continue on into eternity. We long for the righteous judgment of God. We just desperately need the blood of Christ to make sure that that righteous judgment will not be a terrible experience for us, right? So Joshua paints itself very plainly as God's righteous, wrathful judgment on the sin of the Canaanites. That God has looked for generations upon the immorality and the blasphemy of this people and called them to repentance. And now he is bringing about his wrath and his judgment on that sin through the nation of Israel. That's just unpleasant to consider, but it's what it is. It's what the scripture teaches the reality here that God actually like delayed giving the promised land that there might be more time for the Canaanites' sin to stack up, for them to have time to repent or not. Anyway, it's where we're at. God's people are sitting at the banks of the Jordan, getting ready to cross over and take the land that God has given to them, and to do so through force. And Joshua, the general, sends out some spies to scout out the land. If your Bible has maps in the back, I'd encourage you to look at it, because there's probably a little map of Joshua's conquest, and it shows you how they were sitting on the east side of the banks of the Jordan, right north of the Dead Sea, right where Jericho is still to this day, but on the opposite bank. And they essentially cross over and conquer Jericho and a couple other cities, and that becomes kind of this home base for the, 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 the armies of Israel, and they make a campaign to the south and to the west, and then to the north and to the west, and then just a little bit to the west, and that kind of creates a bubble big enough for Israel to settle in the land. But this is right at the beginning, before any of that happens, and Joshua learned from the previous generation's mistake. He doesn't send 12 spies. He sends two. Uh, I guess there's not wisdom in this plurality of counsel, right? So he just sends two, and they go and check it out, and he tells them specifically, make sure you check out Jericho, and there's a really good reason for that. Jericho was one of the largest cities in Canaan at this time. It was an established, like, trade route. There was a lot of wealth, a lot going on here. But more than that, Jericho was a fortified city, which doesn't seem that strange to us when we think about ancient times. But actually, if you can go and Google this and read about the archaeology, Jericho is the oldest example we have of a specifically military defensive fortification around a city. Jericho had a big old wall. (laughs) Jericho had a couple big old walls. They had the original fortified wall in the inner part of the city that was a good 10, 12 feet high and a good four to eight feet thick of of stacked natural stone and mortar that protected the inner city. But as Jericho grew and became a larger metroplex, they built a second outer wall, which is even bigger. It was as, as tall as 18 feet high in parts and as thick as 12 to 15 feet thick. Big old stinking wall. And Jericho is one of the only cities in the world that has this kind of fortifications at this point in human history. So as Israel is looking at this thing, you know, they have an army. They've kicked some butt before. But there's not really established practice for what you do with the big old wall when your main weapon is a pointy stick, you know? And so they're looking at this thing, and Joshua goes, 
You need to go check out Jericho. I have no idea what we're going to do about that one. Make sure you get lots of information. You know, like if there's a button to open the door, you know, things like that, right? And so he sends the spies, they make their way through. And as they make their way into Jericho, we're now introduced to Rahab. Now, Rahab is a prostitute who owns a house built into the wall. Isn't that just like kind of unpleasant that that's her, her kind of legacy here? That's the way we're introduced to this, this woman. That's unfortunate. And I know, this is, I know this is like almost unnecessary to say, but I actually think it's important to say because we're going to speak about this, this lady a lot. You know, no one, no young girls look out over the course of their life and plan and dream and go, I hope I own a brothel someday and I'm a prostitute. That's, that's not a plan someone makes for their life, right? That's the kind of thing that comes together and happens because of a series of misfortunes and bad decisions and sinful things. It's not something someone plans for. But that's who we have in Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. Now we have to understand a couple things about Rahab and about this culture at this time. She was actually pretty much certainly a pretty wealthy and successful business person. And not a prostitute in the way we think of it with, you know, kind of hanging out on the streets at night. What's much more likely, what it seems like, is that she ran a kind of tavern or roadhouse. A place where travelers, this is a big commerce city, coming in and out of the city could stay and get a meal or get other services, right? And that she seems to be doing pretty well. She's established. She's taken care of. She's running this business. And, and, and by the way, we see that she's successful because she's able, not just, not just able, like has the skill to, but does. She operates as the head of her household. I know that's a weird thing to say, right? But we see her negotiate a contract on behalf of her family, which is something that is unheard of in this world at this time. She has a living father. She mentions him. But when her home is spoken of, even when they become part of Israel, it's spoken as the household of Rahab. She is the head of her household, which is insane. Something very, very rare in this world. That she is successful enough, wealthy enough, taken care of enough, has enough business acumen that she is representing her household and able to make an agreement on behalf of her household. No, 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 listen, I understand, right? Like, this is pretty wild circumstances. Like, she's trying to avoid death. But still, she, she has very, spe- very specifically worded agreement she makes with these men. And there's even some back and forth and, like, like negotiating as she's, like, lowering them out the window. Like, this lady knows what she's doing. But don't mistake her business success for her having a status in this society. See, even though Rahab is very obviously good at what she does and wealthy and established as a business owner, she very much would have been on the outskirts of her society. And we see that physically because her house is built into the outer wall of Jericho. This is the worst place to live in the city. 
The inner city behind two sets of walls that was most protected is where the wealthy, where the educated, where the leaders of society lived. And the lower you were down on the social social totem pole, whether that's through poverty or through whatever, the farther out from the core of the city you lived, she is literally on the absolute outskirts of her society. Her house is built into the wall, the outer wall of Jericho, which may have had some practical business benefits for her with caravans coming in and out of the city, but really paints a picture of the fact that even though her business is doing well and she's successful, her society is not particularly a big fan of her. I know we have no experience with what that looks like in Western America, but some cultures apparently decide that certain things need to be done, and so they allow people to do those tasks, perform those jobs, but they kind of do their best to avoid those people and pretend they're not there. I know we don't deal with that. We don't have that kind of thing. But, but that is apparently a thing in human history where we want this business to happen, but we don't want to, by accident, see this lady while we're taking a walk with our family. So let's make sure she's over there where we don't have to go, right? This is the place, the role Rahab plays in Jericho's society. And it's the exact reason why the spies end up at her roadhouse because they want to fly under the radar. (laughs) They don't want anyone to see them while they're out on a walk also. So they hide out there. It's the perfect spot to hide out while they're gathering all their intel, except that it doesn't work. They get outed. The king of Jericho finds out they're in the city. And guys, I want to I want, to, I want to encourage us to put ourselves in this part of the story real quick because this is intense. This is like a scene out of like a political thriller spy movie, right? Because these guys are hiding out in her house, going in and out over the course of multiple days, gathering intel, learning about the city. And then one day, Rahab comes to them and goes, you need to get on the roof right now. And you can almost imagine the scene as she takes them up into the attic and hides them away and goes downstairs. I don't know about you guys, I can almost like picture this, right, of these guys like sitting in the dark room, like being as quiet as they can and hearing the guards downstairs like trumping around and going, we know the spies are here, where are they? Send them out. And I want you to imagine the tension of this moment for a second. Because here's the thing, there is zero reason for Rahab to help these men. There is no good reason for her to help them. She knows who they are. She knows what they're doing. Helping them is not just treason. It's not just punishable by death. These men are here to scout out and think up good strategies for how to kill her people and take their land. This is her enemy. And by the way, It is important to frame it that way. Rahab is the Canaanite's Canaanite, the Gentile's Gentile. She runs a brothel in Jericho, one of the capital cities of the pagan Canaanite region, the place that God is pouring out his wrath for unrepentant blasphemy, idolatry, and immorality. Right? She embodies the reason God is destroying Canaan. She is absolutely these men's enemy. But in that moment, when she could turn them over and let them be tortured to death, she lies. 
and says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were here. I, I, didn't know, I didn't know they were spies. They already left. Yeah, as soon as they were getting ready to close the gates, they ran out of the town and ran away. If you hurry up, you can still catch them. Imagine that moment. Sitting up in that dark attic, right? A bunch of, a bunch of like leaves and stuff piled over the top of you. And that silence after she says that as the guards kind of look around the house one more time. And then they leave. And they go on a wild goose chase. And this woman has risked her entire life, livelihood, and the lives of her families for her enemies. Why did this just happen? This makes no sense. And as she comes up and begins to help them escape from the city because the gates are shut and they're outed, people are hunting for them, she lets us in on what's going on. She says, we've heard about Israel. We know what Yahweh is like. That he rescued you from Egypt and he supernaturally split the Red Sea and brought you guys across dry land and took you through the wilderness and guided you and cared for you and destroyed your enemies in front of you. The, the kings from the other side of the river, those nations and states that we have been dealing with for, for generations don't exist because God allowed you to wipe them out. We know what Israel's like and we know what Yahweh's like and we're terrified. She uses this phrase, our hearts have melted. She knows. But here's what's so beautiful. For the people of Canaan, the report about who Yahweh is, the, the revelation of what God is like, it births terror. It births frantic panic self-protection, self-preservation. It melts their hearts. But not in Rahab. In Rahab, something shifts. And that fear, that melted heart, turns into a proclamation of faith. Look at this. She, she says this. There's no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She acknowledges this story. This isn't just a thing. Yahweh is who He sounds like He is. He is the God of heaven and the God of earth. It's how that stuff happened. And I want in on that. And she puts herself at the mercy of this God and these people. I know that you guys are right. I know that God is who people says he is, and I just, I want in on that. I'm doing, I'm doing right by you. So spare my family. Spare us from the wrath to come. And you know what? God does. I love that. I love this story. If you, if you keep going and you read in Joshua 6, they get ready, they cross over the river. If you were in Sunday school, you know this. They get their trumpets out and they like dance around the city, like praising and marching and playing, I guess, Michael W. Smith songs. And after a while, they blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down, right? And Jericho is routed and destroyed 
And this monument to Canaanite power is a burning pile of rubble as these fortified walls that no group of Israelites with pointy sticks could conquer tumble over to the ground in the face of the power of Yahweh, except for one little section. One little chunk of wall with a window with a scarlet cord. I love that. I love that they made the commitment, we'll protect you to stay in your house. Having no clue how God was going to work this thing, and his plan was to destroy the wall, uh, i.e. her house. And yet, when the day of judgment comes, Rahab and Rahab's family are spared. They're saved. And there's this amazing section where Joshua, as, as, as this chaos and violence is happening, Joshua looks to the spies and says, go, get her and her family out of their house, get their stuff, and take them to the camp. And it says the family of Rahab dwelt among the people of God to this day. I love that. Because God doesn't just spare Rahab from the wrath. He doesn't just take her and her family out of the bad. He brings her into the blessing. He he gives her the good. And a story that starts by introducing us to Rahab the prostitute ends with Rahab, the daughter of Abraham, included into the family, not just included into the family, but included into the lineage of Jesus himself. The faith of Rahab moves her from a place of being the Canaanite's Canaanite, the Gentile's Gentile, under the wrath of God, to being included in the blessing, included in the family, drawn in to the gospel plan of God to bring about redemption for all mankind. Come on. This is why in Hebrews 11, when the author of Hebrews is talking about Christian faith, what it means to be people of faith, he, he goes and he, and he lists all these different examples of faith through the Old Testament, just telling the story of generation after generation of faith going through, starting with, with the patriarchs and working his way up. And when he gets to Joshua and talks about how by faith, God's people entered into the promised land and God knocked down the walls of Jericho in, 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 in Hebrews eleven thirty one, he immediately says, and by the faith of Rahab, because she showed kindness to the spies. God spared her and her family. By that faith, this family of wrath becomes a family of blessing. It is included in the kingdom. Come on, church. If that doesn't bring you back to the gospel of Jesus, I don't know what will. Children of wrath, by nature deserving the judgment of God, our sin ever before us, earning us the righteous punishment But Christ steps in in our place and dies on the cross and takes the penalty for our sin, removes us from the bad, but isn't satisfied with that. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't just save us from the bad. He brings us into the good. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He imputes his righteousness in us. And when Christ returns and all things are restored and the final judgment of God wipes away everything evil and everything sinful and everything awful, you won't be wiped away <laughs> because God will look upon you and see his son. God will look upon your heart and see Jesus' righteousness and you will be included in the blessing. A child of wrath brought into the family. Come on, church. And what's the difference? 
What is the difference in this story between a family of wrath and a family of righteousness, a family of blessing? The difference is faith. It's, it's seeing who God is and what he's done and trusting and believing him. You see, we live in a time that tells us that faith is unreasonable. It is a foolish way to engage the world. I'm sure you guys have heard this or something similar to it, that faith is believing things without a good reason or choosing to believe something even though you don't have evidence. Because that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith is a natural and normal way that human beings believe things. Uh, Follow me on this. This is a little boring, but follow me on this. There's only a couple ways you as a human can believe something is true. You can experience it. So I can say, it's cold and wet outside. And I can walk outside and feel the cold air and see the rain falling and go verify that statement by my experience. And then my brain believes it's true. I believe it's true. It's cold and wet outside. I've experienced it. You can believe something is true by reasoning it out, by imagining it, by thinking through it. You can think through two plus two makes four. And you don't have to have four things in front of you to do that. You can, in your mind, visualize and imagine, think and use your reason and go, yeah, two plus two is four. That makes sense to me. And you can believe that that is true. But here's the problem. We live pretty busy lives that are in pretty isolated places compared to the universe. And there's a whole lot of things that you cannot experience and you don't have time to reason out. That gap, the things we believe without reasoning or without experiencing, is faith. Belief by faith. Belief by faith is when you believe something because you've received a report or revelation about it. Information has been given to you from someone else who reasoned it or experienced it. And you trust the source of the information and you believe it. It is about as normal of a way for humans to believe things as you can imagine. Because you need faith to function in the world. You need to be able to take things on faith. I have never sat down and picked apart an airplane and messed with the parts. I've never set up the simulations in computers to run stress tests on all the different parts and make sure when that plane flies it won't like explode into pieces or that it's made out of the right metals. I've never experienced that, and I'm not certainly not smart enough to reason it out in my head, but other people have. <laughs> and I can Google it, and I can go, oh, okay, yeah, a bunch of people did this, and they know what they're doing. My brother does stuff like that for Boeing, for airplanes. And I can just go, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. And I can get in the airplane, and I can fly away, right? You can get in a chair and assume that someone probably made sure that chair could hold up people. That makes sense. We need to be able to live that way. We can't experience or reason everything. I can walk outside. You can say, hey, is it cold and wet outside? And I go, oh, let me find out. And I can walk outside and I can feel the cold and see the rain and go, yeah, it's cold and wet outside. And I can believe that. But then if you look at me and go, hey, is it, is it cold and wet in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia right now? I have no way of experiencing that, practically speaking. I could like reason it out and be like, well, I don't know, it's cold and wet here. But that isn't anything. So what would I do? I would get on my phone and I'd pull up weather.com and I would go, oh, look at that. It's cold and wet in Mongolia. But I'm not experiencing it. What I would probably do is text my brother who lives there and go, hey, is it cold and wet in Mongolia? 
And he'd go, yeah, it's always cold wet in Mongolia. And then he'd send me some pictures and some videos, and I'd go, yeah, see? I haven't experienced it. I haven't independently verified it. I don't know if he photoshopped the pictures, and this is a conspiracy theory, and it's not actually cold and wet Mongolia. But I generally trust the source, and so I can go, yeah, it's cold and wet in Mongolia right now. But there's also a truth, right, that sometimes your sources aren't great. In fact, my brother likes pranking me. So if, I, if you say, hey, is it cold and wet in Mongolia? And I text him, and he goes, oh my gosh, it is literally raining cats. And then he sends me a gif of cats, like, raining out of the sky. A pretty good chance I'll go... I don't believe that's accurate. <laughs> I think this might be a prank. I wouldn't turn around and go, my brother says it's literally raining cats, so I guess that's the weather over there. That's wild. We wouldn't do that because that's, that's how belief works. As you gather data in front of you and you receive reports and revelation, you kind of gather data and you kind of subconsciously assess to what level you trust the source you're receiving the data from, and then you believe it or you don't believe it which, by the way, creates a lot of problems for people of faith. Because you can't force yourself to believe something. You can't in your mind go, I want to believe this even though I don't. Therefore, I believe it. Your brain will go, no, you don't. And you can't do anything about that. Your brain is gathering the data and it's run the simulations in your subconscious and going, I don't think so. And you don't have much you can do about that at that point. You can't just force it to make you believe something you don't believe. It's a problem, right? We've all had that experience before where someone's telling us something and we're like along for it and the more they talk, you start to go, oh, this guy's messing with me. Oh, okay, this is not actually true. Oh, okay. And then the switch flips in your head, right? But we've also had the experience where you walk into a classroom and you sit down and open up your textbook and you listen to your teacher lecture and write on the whiteboard and never for a split second do you question anything they're saying or anything you're reading. You just go, yeah, these guys know about this stuff, I don't. And you write your notes and you take your test and you trust the report and the revelation you received in good faith. In good faith that teachers will teach accurate things and textbooks will give you accurate representations of formulas, and you may or may not go back and independently verify that, but in the moment, you take it in good faith. Faith is a normative part of the human experience, how we decide what is true and what isn't true. So when we talk about Christian faith, we're talking about this experience. Do you believe reports and revelations given to you about Christianity? Guys, there is a whole lot of reporting and Revelation, in this book, that tells us about the nature and person of God, and the work he has done on our behalf, and the promises he has made in the past and kept, and the promises he has made about the future. So when we talk about Christian faith, we are asking purely and simply, do you trust what you've been heard, what you've heard? Do you believe it? Do you believe God is who the Bible says he is? Do you believe he does what he says he'll do? So when we talk about faith in Advent, bringing it back to Christmas, it's the same thing we've said each week. Advent is wonderful. Christmas is great. But Christmas, God did not come to earth to be a cute little baby. I mean, he was, and it's awesome, and we should have the nativity scenes because they're cute. 
But he didn't come here to just be a baby and be cute. He came here to die on the cross and make a way for us from death to life, to save us from our sins. And he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. And he has promised that one day he will return and restore all things. And at the final judgment, everything wrong will be undone. And everything good will be made perfect for eternity. That is a promise of God. And your faith speaks to whether or not you believe it is true. You haven't experienced that directly. You haven't reasoned it out. It has been revealed to you. Reports have been given. And you have to decide if you trust them or not. If you believe they're true or not. Because if you do, you will act on that. Think about Rahab. She, she rejected her entire people. She forsook everything she had known and learned about the world. She stepped away from her culture, her people, her history, her government, her city, everything she had known because she looked at the report of Yahweh and said, I believe that. And I'm all in on this and I want in on that. And because of that, Jericho is destroyed, but not the house of Rahab. Jericho doesn't exist, but Rahab is brought into the very family of Jesus. Great, 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 great grandma Rahab. Come on, church. Your faith directly affects the way you engage the world. Directly impacts the kind of risks you'll take, the way you'll choose to live. And if you're like me, that's kind of discouraging. <laughs> because I'm someone who struggles with faith. I know, I know some people who just seem like they're spiritually gifted in faith, and you talk to them, and just faith and trust in Christ just oozes out of everything they say. And I'm just a little more cynical than that sometimes. And I give my doubts way more voice than I probably should in my head. And I let them spin around and ruminate and think about them often. <laughs> Sometimes faith seems like it's really hard to grasp because you can't just flip the switch. You can't just make your brain turn off and go, no, we're good. It has to do its job. It has to think. So what do we actually do with that? What is the, what is the call to this? Right? We read the story and go, that's beautiful. I love it. Look at Rahab's faith. Look how God brought her from wrath to blessing. And that's the story of Jesus. And he brings us, us from wrath to blessing. Like, amen, Merry Christmas, let's go. But what if faith is hard for you? What if it doesn't come naturally? What do you do with that today? I want to encourage you with something, and this is how we'll land. If you want to come up here, Chris, there's this story in Luke. It's one of my favorite Bible stories where Jesus has dinner with a Pharisee and this prostitute comes to visit him. In the middle, she crashes the dinner party and just starts like weeping on him in front of everyone. And it's really awkward. You should read it. It's a great story. But she has complete and total faith in who Jesus is. Complete and total faith. She makes an absolute spectacle of herself because she's confident that Jesus is who he looks like he is. And at the end of that story, Jesus looks this woman in the eye and he says, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. I love that text. I love that story. And I love that phrase because 
in some ways that's not actually true. I mean, in a mechanical sense, it is the grace of God that saves you. It is the work of Jesus on your behalf. It's not by works. We don't boast, even if that work is believing. It's God, God working on our behalf to save us. Faith, faith is what draws you into that experience. You know, Ephesians 2 says, it's by grace that you are saved, not by works so that no one may boast. And when he says it again, it's by grace you are saved through faith. Through our trust, our belief that God is who he says he is, that he will accomplish what he says he'll accomplish. If you don't believe that, well, how the heck are you going to experience that forgiveness? You don't think it's real. But here's the cool thing, and here's how we land on this. I'm going to ask, because I'm going to ask you guys to sit and pray over this. If you struggle with faith, I have a really good encouragement for you today. Talk to God about that. Because your brain, God designed your brain to believe things and engage the world and engage faith. You have faith in all sorts of things all the time when you trust the source. If you are struggling with your faith in God, you are struggling with your trust of the reliability of the source the reports and revelations given to you. So I would encourage you, talk to God about your lack of faith. Engage his word. Look at the source, look at the revelation, and look at the reports. And I promise you something, beloved of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of your trust. Our God keeps his promises. Our God does what he says he'll do. And the more you spend time with him and the more you consider him and the more you read the reports and the more you look at the revelation, I promise you, the evidence is so overwhelmingly on the side of trustworthiness that your brain will grow in that. If you wrestle with faith, then wrestle with God. Spend time with him because he will prove himself faithful over and over and over and over and over and over. And eventually, your broken little sinful human heart will go, yeah, yeah, I trust this. And God will let you do that. So I'm going to invite you to do this. Chris is going to sing a song to us. I've gone way all over today, I'm sorry. Chris is going to sing a song to us. And I would encourage you in this time to just take a minute and talk to Jesus. Talk to him about your faith. Be honest, beloved, because I'm going to tell you something. He already knows how much you trust or don't trust him. <laughs> so just tell him. Tell him where you struggle to believe. Tell him the doubts that ruminate and circle in your head. Tell him the things that draw you away from trust and faith. See what he says to you. See what he does with that. Pray with me, church. Jesus, you are so good. You're so good. When I think of this time of year and the thought of you as my God and my creator condescending to this world, going from eternity to the mud and the mire, I have no words for that, Jesus. You are so good. Jesus, grow our faith. Grow our trust in you. 
Meet us in our doubts, meet us in our questions, and make us people of faith. Beloved, do the work you need to do with Jesus this morning.